Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather today to celebrate the great good news that you have sent your Son into the world to make you known to us, to save us. And that in his coming there is the promise of his return and that one day our death will be no more and we will rise with him and there will be peace and righteousness throughout the world. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of his coming. We thank you for the hope he brings and we pray in your mercy you will grant me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly And we would all receive it with believing hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, there are lots of questions in life, uh, ranging from the trivial, you know, what will I get in my Christmas cracker, how bad will the jokes be this year, uh, to the life-changing. Will he ask me? Will she say yes? But fewer bigger than the three questions, the beginning of John's Gospel, a passage often read at Christmas, answers for us. These three questions. Is there a God? Is he good? Will he be good to me? Three questions, the answers to which don't just affect your present but your eternity. So let's consider each. Is there a God? You may have already settled in your mind how this question should be answered, but everyone can admit that how you answer that question makes a difference. If you say, yes, there's a God, it means at the very least we're not alone in the universe. There's someone more powerful than us at work in the world. And if the God whose existence we're discussing is the Christian God, It means a lot more. It means there's someone to whom we owe our lives and who gives value to our lives, our creator. Someone to whom we are accountable, who will sit in judgment on our lives. Oh, and it means we're not God and we don't get the final say on right and wrong and the nature of reality. Oh, and if you say, no, there is no God, well, that matters too. Then we're just the result of time and random material forces alone as persons in the universe, accountable to no one other than ourselves, free to make our own rules and our lives have only the value we place upon them. And it's up to us to get the most value out of this brief and random time alive on earth. The universe we live in is different depending on how we answer the question, is there a God? Our lives will be different depending on how we answer the question. For a life lived conscious of eternity and an accounting to one who sees and knows all is different to a life lived where this life is all you have and it's only yourself and the other people you choose that you have to please. Is there a God? It's an important question. John's prologue, these first 18 verses of his gospel, answers yes. We can know there is a God, he says, by looking at Jesus. See, from the start, John asserts that there is a God, a God who can be known. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Oh, no one's ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And John makes 
this assertion that there's a God confidently, not on the basis of philosophical arguments or evidence of designing creation or by trying to answer every question we might have about God's existence. John makes this assertion on the basis of first-hand experience. Reflecting on the creation story in Genesis 1, in verses 1 and 2, John introduces us there to the word, the word who is with God and is God and through whom all that is is brought into being. And then in verse 14 he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word who is God and makes God known, says John, has now become flesh. Come to live amongst people as one of us, the man Jesus. And John says, we've experienced him. We have seen, observed his glory. Just as in Israel's history, a history known by John and his first readers, Moses had glimpsed on Mount Sinai God's glory in the revelation of his character. Even so, says John, we, John and the other eyewitnesses, have seen the glory, the visible splendour of the word become flesh, the unique son of God. Now, if John is correct in what he saw, his experience settles the question. You cannot see the glory of the son of God if there is no God. But of course, John doesn't expect his assertion that he's experienced God in the person of Jesus to persuade you just by asserting it of the existence of God. These verses are written to persuade you, you see, to read on, to let John tell you of his experience of Jesus that persuaded him that he had experienced God in the person of Jesus, written to let John give you the same evidence that brought him to that conclusion and he hopes will bring you and I to share his conclusion. And if you do read on, and I hope you will, you'll see the evidence is compelling. Now John says at the end of his gospel he can't write everything that has brought John to that conclusion, but he says he selected for us some incidents that make it clear that Jesus is the Son of God, incidents he calls signs, events that point clearly to who Jesus is, that he's more than a man, he's Israel's God come amongst his people to save. Now, you might know some of those signs. They're pretty famous, you know, producing hundreds of litres of best quality wine from water at a wedding, healing with a word, someone who was many kilometres away, healing a man crippled for 38 years with all those contractions but who immediately got up and walked, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fish, giving sight to a man born blind, raising Lazarus who had been dead for four days from the grave and above all, at the end of the gospel, Jesus himself dying and then rising from the dead in the body in which he died, but which will never know death again. Now, every one of those things is beyond what is possible for those who only know the life of this world. All show in Jesus a power that the people of this world just don't possess. Yet Jesus does these things in public, 
exercises is this power visible to all, the power of the creator. Is there a God? Christians answer that by pointing to Jesus. If the gospel is true, then yes, beyond doubt, there is a God. And if you have all your life been saying the answer is no, then you owe it to yourself to look at the evidence the gospel presents, not to rule it out a priori just from the beginning. I mean, that's what people often do. They reason like this. The gospel reports those mighty works, those miracles. No miracle is believable. The gospel's not believable. But you see, that reasoning begs the question of God's existence. See, if there is a God, well, resurrection, for example, is possible. It's the kind of thing God can do. So the prior question is not, are miracles believable? But is there a God? And you can't answer that question by coming to the evidence assuming there is no God. That's just circular reasoning, finding your assumption in your conclusion. You actually have to look at the evidence in its own right. You have to read John, see if he's believable, work out whether he's telling the truth. Is, say, the apostles' explanation of their experience of resurrection, of meeting Jesus alive from the dead, the most compelling. Now, I, I say it is not just me, others, least trouble, many. And I've looked at the alternative explanations. You know, that the body was stolen, that the apostles have a conspiracy to keep Jesus' message alive. Oh, they're all hallucinating. He swooned on the cross and revived. Let's face it, they are all far less believable than what the apostles say is at the root of their message, that they met the risen Jesus alive from the dead. You need to look at the evidence. Is there a God? It's an important question, and John says, yes, I have seen the God's glory in his son. And you can look at the evidence he provides. Read the gospel. Do it. Test it for yourself. But knowing whether there's a God or not is not enough. Being persuaded of the existence of God might just be troubling. It can be frightening to know that there is operating in the universe, in your world, a being who is so much more powerful than you, someone on whom your life depends, someone who will judge you, and that can be frightening if you don't know that someone is good. So you might be a person who thinks there's a God or somehow a power but have doubts about his character. And just from observation of the world, you might not be sure that the power who controls everything is good. Oh yeah, there's a lot of good in the world, but there's also a lot that's troubling. Or your background might be one where people believe in many gods or spirits, some of them malevolent. So it's important to know, isn't it, whether this God we meet in Jesus is good or not. And John says to us, you can know beyond doubt that God is good by looking at Jesus. As John reflects <coughs> on his experience of Jesus and what he's seen in and experienced from Jesus, he chooses two words to sum up his observations. Uh, it's to sum up both his experience and the experience 
of the other disciples. And those words are grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John saw in the splendour of God, Jesus makes visible. And what Jesus makes visible is grace, free, generous kindness, showing favour to someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, we might have trouble describing grace, but we know it when we experience it. When, for example, we've been rude to someone or ignored them, and then later, when we are being left out, that person includes us. Well, that's grace. When you see someone helping someone in need who has no call on them, it's not their family or friends, that's grace. But there's more to grace here. John, as I've said, is comparing the ex- his experience to Moses' experience on Mount Sinai, recorded in Exodus 34, where Moses saw the passing of God's glory and heard the Lord proclaim his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the Greek word translated in John 1 as grace is chosen because its meaning best overlaps with the meaning of the Hebrew word translated steadfast love in Exodus 34. See, John says, we saw manifested in Jesus that generous, patient love of God for his people. That love that goes well beyond what could be expected or required in the covenant, the relationship God had with his people, the the love that would not finish with Israel, that persevered with them despite failure after failure, rebellion after rebellion, despite Israel's persistent, adulterous unfaithfulness. This is what we saw in Jesus. But though it sums up John's experience, you know, grace only occurs in these few verses in John. In the rest of the gospel, what you'll find spoken of is love. God's love for the world in giving his son to give eternal life to rebellious humanity. The love of the father for the son that glorifies the son and the son for the father that does his will. And yes, the love of Jesus for his sinful people, a love that finds its greatest expression in his death. John introduces his account of Jesus last night with these words. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the death. And Jesus himself speaks of that love to his followers. As the fathers loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And he goes on. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this. To lay down his life for his friends. There was no greater way Jesus could love his followers than dying for him, for them. For that death was purposeful. The death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that cleanses them from everything that would be offensive in God's sight and makes them fit to receive the Spirit of God. 
And that death we know was freely undertaken. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. And Jesus died that death not just to show us how much he loved us, but to do great good, to bring eternal life to all who believe in him. And actually it's only in achieving that goal that his death is loving, isn't it? I mean, if a bloke is with his girl, say, you know, he's out on St Kilda Pier at the end, and he says, I love you, let me show you, and he jumps in and drowns. You'd think, she's better off without him, actually. No, uh, she probably shed a tear, but you'd think that. But if she fell in, and she can't, and she's drowning, and he jumps in, and he drowns while rescuing her, you think, actually, that's love. Giving life for this great good, this great goal, to give life to those who are loved. You see, John and the other disciples experienced this grace, this love, despite their imperfect understanding, despite a continuing preoccupation with position and power we see in the Gospels, oh yes, and despite abandoning the Lord Jesus in the moment of his trial. Jesus knew that they would do that. You will leave me alone. And yet he loved them. Knowing that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for them to save those who did not deserve to be saved from the deserved consequences of their rebellion against God, John experienced in Jesus the gracious love of God. And John says he experienced truth in Jesus, Truth that embraces speaking the truth and more. Faithfulness to what is spoken, faithfulness to promises, faithfulness to a gracious commitment, the faithfulness of Israel's God. See, John is saying that all that Jesus spoke and did was true. He was absolutely, utterly reliable, completely trustworthy, promised he would rise, and he did. Promised he would give the Spirit of God, and he did. More. John is saying Jesus' whole ministry, including his death and rising, was the Lord, Israel's God, doing exactly what he had promised he would do in the Old Testament, saving his people and becoming the one in whom the whole world could find salvation, eternal life, saving his people by coming to dwell amongst his people, defeating their enemies, bringing peace and resurrection life, life that will never run out, never leave us grieving and thirsty, but will always bubble up within us. Now, there's a lot there. And in the coming years, I've said, we are going to spend more time meeting Jesus in John's gospel. But John says, is the God I've met in Jesus good? Yes, for grace and truth is what we need. Generous kindness that will meet us in our neediness, in our thirst for a sure and abiding love, in our hunger for life, grace that will comfort us in our grief at death, give us light in the darkness of our blindness and confusion, help when we are helpless and undeserving. For that grief and blindness, confusion, thirst and hunger, we have caused by turning our backs on our creator. But he still shows us grace and truth. We need truth, a word more a person we can utterly rely on who will never fail in a promise and whose word is stronger than death. Seeing God's goodness in Jesus 
who reveals God in himself <coughs> doesn't answer all the questions we might have about the way the world is or why this or that happens. But you look at Jesus and you see he's against the pride and lies and hatred that mar human life. You don't find any of that in him. From his birth in a stable to his death on the cross, you see humbling himself for the good of others, acting in love and faithfulness, and he's against the sickness and death that impoverishes. His power brings wholeness and life. So looking at the world, you might have doubts about God's goodness and, of course, some seem very confident in saying that if God were good and the world, the world wouldn't be the way it is. But the world is big and we are small. We can't get our head around it all, know the reasons why this or that happens to anyone. If we're realistic about our smallness, the finiteness of our understanding and, yes, sometimes the vested interest we have in keeping God out of our lives, we'll see that we are in no position to draw conclusions about God's goodness from our limited understanding through the small segment of life we observed. And though some now has then challenged Jesus' goodness because he reveals as sin some practice or attitude they love, when you look at Jesus, his kindness to children, his patience with the needy, the good news he brings to the poor, the humility of his service, when you see he would rather die than kill, die to give us who are enslaved to death life, you should have no doubt about Jesus' goodness and in him we see God. Is God? Look at Jesus. Is he good? Look at Jesus. But you can be convinced God is and God, be, and God is good but still have doubts about whether the good God will be good to you. And of course that has to do with you as well as with God. You sense that God being the God we see in Jesus might exclude who you are from his presence inevitably. I mean light excludes darkness. And you see darkness in your heart, those hidden thoughts, the secret lusts, the envy, the hatred. Truth excludes lies. But you find in yourself broken promises and obligations willfully not met. Oh, real love has no place for those who are committed to selfishness, to getting their own way by demanding, manipulating, disregarding the interests of others. See, and God being God leaves... No room for creatures to be God, not even of their own lives. And you can recognise in yourself what is dark and untrue and loveless and that restless resentment of God's rule and wonder. Will the good God, can the good God be good to me and still be good himself, his grace and truth uncompromised? But again, looking at Jesus, John says that without a doubt, you can know the good God will be good to you if you turn to him, if you believe in his son. In a world where many rejected him, in a world where many rejected him because they loved their darkness and lies, John says that to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God 
to those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, to all who believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. And to be the children of God is to be assured of God's goodness. And being his child is a gift given, not to those who have earned it by their good lives or privileged birth, but to those who believe, who open their hand to God's gift. And this believing, yes, it's not just believing that what the gospel says about Jesus is true, it's entrusting ourselves into his hand by doing what he says. But that is the means of receiving the gift of God's grace, not its cause. And grace, you see, is what John experienced through and through from Jesus, from the God who is rich in love and mercy. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace. John is saying that our experience of Jesus is always through and through an experience of grace. You see, the promise of God in Jesus is made to the thirsty and the hungry, not the full. It's, his promises are made to those who know, feel their need and are not confident of their own resources or goodness. The promises in Jesus are made to those who know they don't deserve God to be good to them. And yet those promises are made to them. And the Son of God says he will not turn away any who come to him. The Son, who died to take away the sins of the world, who was lifted up on the cross to draw all people to himself, who sent his apostles into the world with a gospel of forgiveness of sins to all who believe their proclamation that Jesus crucified and risen is the reigning Son of God. That Son, the Son whose birth we celebrate this morning, will be good to you if you come trusting him. He lives and he will hear you when you ask him to make known to you his grace and truth. He will show you grace. So the three most important questions. Is God, is God good? Will he be good to me? Jesus, the word becomes flesh tells us the answer to each question is yes. God is. He is good. And he will be good to you. And that's why in a world where human pride lies and violence cause such misery and pain, we can still rejoice today. The day we remember that the eternal son took on our life by being conceived in the virgin's womb and being born in that stable so long ago. We rejoice because through John's eyes and in his words, we too behold his glory, full of grace and truth for us and for all who will turn to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray uh, that today, this day when many of us give and receive presents, you would give us the greatest gift. You would give us the gift of knowing the grace and truth that come through Jesus. And that we would be convicted of your kindness 
in his death to give life to sinners and of your faithfulness in keeping all your promises, including your promise to make us your children and to raise us from the dead. Our Father, give us conviction of our Lord's grace and truth so that our joy and hope would be in him always. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.